0: It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts.
1: Well, hello there. The 18th day of June, it's a Tuesday. Good to have you with us for another edition of Lifeline. We are, of course, here in this stead, keeping you company every Monday through Friday from 5 until 7 p.m., addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. Well, busy show today for you, but before we get started and meet our first guest, wanted to first... um, Share a big shout-out to uh, all the fathers out there, post-Father's Day here by a couple of days. And uh, also let you know that, wow, what a wonderful partnership with Cross International. And uh, as you know, we were working to gain the necessary resources to provide full-year scholarships and meals for needy children in Haiti, Ecuador, and Peru. We had a goal of 150 children that would receive a full-year educational sponsorship, or scholarship, rather, and um, thanks to you. Wow, and God's grace, we uh, we did nearly 200 kids, which is fantastic. So uh, big hearty thank you. Hats off to everyone who participated in the campaign and, and gave um, out of their, uh, uh, their resources to help meet this goal and, most importantly, to bless these needy, needy kids. So, again, God bless you and thank you so much for being involved. Education, of course, critically important. We talk about it with great frequency here on the program. One story related to education here in California um, hasn't had a good ending so far, though we hope that it will. This is a story of a Christian boarding school in Northern California, recently raided by state officials. Now you hear the word raided and think, my good night, there must be something nefarious going on. Well, Riverview Christian Academy is located in Northern California, and recently they experienced a raid, and I say raid because it consisted of 16 armed law enforcement officers, two canine units, and 17 social workers literally descending upon this small Christian school. All this in response to what apparently was an internet rumor that turned out to be absolutely null and void let's find out what's going on with the case of riverview christian academy we're joined by the founder and president of the pacific justice institute brad Dakis. and brad on this fine tuesday thank you for being with us tell us a bit this is uh this is pretty severe there must have been something really nefarious going on that they had solid suspicions over to uh, to descend upon that school and these young frightened students and teachers with that kind of uh, firepower
2: yeah, it, this is one of the worst atrocities by the state of California, specifically the California Department of Social Services um, that I have ever seen probably in my lifetime. It was so horrific because this school is not like a, a new school and questionable. It's very established, has an excellent reputation and track record with regards to uh, the kids that attend there, their lives, their futures. Much better, overwhelmingly better than the state boarding schools that have an incredible failure rate when it comes to drug abuse, pregnancy, dropouts, crime, etc. So, um, the reason they're being picked on point blank is because this is a Christian boarding school. The Department of Social Services, uh, with a strong push by the uh, radical LGBTQ, want to shut them down because of their christian biblical world view they don't not only want to shut this school down uh, we believe that they want to shut every christian boarding school uh... that uh... has anything to do with um... these kids and transforming their lives in a way that they may not agree with
1: Now, the state, of course, is countering by saying, well, part of the problem here is that uh, we had allegations that there were uh, basically collections of weapons on campus that uh, they had concerns over. Also, there have been allegations that this facility has been operating more of a um, sort of a rehabilitation facility rather than an educational facility. What of those allegations by the state?
2: Well, first off, the allegations that they had received was about 10 years old from a left-wing um, radical uh, unreputable internet source that had never been there
1: oh you say you can't you can't believe the internet on everything oh I'm shocked <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah I mean it was it was uh, no, no foundation at all they saw it as an opportunity they went in they rated they looked at everything every drawer every person they everywhere um, they didn't find anything illegal uh, so it's it's um, you know, and and as far as like, you know, it being a rehab center, um, they do not provide any uh, counseling to these kids. Yeah, they have a chapel service, they have Christian teaching. It's it's the United States of America. We should be able to have a school that has Christian teaching. Uh, but if the kids want counseling, um, then that's uh, put on by a private in, uh, counseling institution with an agreement with the parents. It's between the parents and the counselor, and the, or whatever counseling institution that the parents want to work with, the school. Simply will drive the child there and drive them back to make sure the child is protected and safe. Um, that's good uh, boarding school practices, but because they drove them there, that's the only thing they're trying to put their hang their head on. Because they drove them there to the school that the parents designated for the or for this counseling that the parents designated, they wanted their child to go to. That makes it a, a big uh, rehab center, subject to all the, the regulations, including a prohibition of any. Uh, teaching against sexual activity be either same-sex or opposite-sex activity by these kids with one another in sexual exploration that's what they want to push that's what the state regs are for the state schools and that of course would obliterate any christian true christianity Uh, At this school, if they got away with it. Well, we've
1: seen the state pushing the same agenda when it comes to foster parenting, where uh, regardless of uh, what the uh, what the particular spiritual environment might be in a household, the belief system in place of the family, uh, the the state comes along and says, now if a child wishes to, uh, you know, explore uh, uh, cross dressing or gender fluidity, et cetera, et cetera, they're completely entitled to do so. In fact, you can't even compel them to go to church. So this is certainly nothing new. BuzzFeed is reporting that there have been allegations of, quote, severe treatment, saying that punishment includes serving children only vegetable broth, vegetable sticks and toast for every meal, or further punishing children who misbehave by making them sleep on wood planks with no mattresses, sheets and blankets. I I don't know that that necessarily rises to the level of a concentration camp, but what of those allegations being promoted by BuzzFeed?
2: Yeah, and BuzzFeed is, I wasn't going to mention their name, but yeah, they're the, they're the outfit that's um, that's so far, you know, it's left, it's, it's not reputable.
1: Uh, stirring, um, stirring the pot here.
2: They're just stirring the pot, and those things were all checked out. Those were bogus. Um, they were not true, they were not correct. Uh, so, bottom line BuzzFeed fall, falls into the, the, the agenda of the LGBTQ, the radicals that want to shut down all the Christian. Boarding schools and eventually the Christian private schools that continue with their biblical teaching. Uh, that is their end game. There is, the end game is complete silencing and, and they're not going to stop there. Then I think they'll go with the churches. They'll start with the tax exempt status of churches, 501c3, and then they'll move on and move on, uh, to property tax exemptions, etc Um, so this is why it's so important and why we at Pacific Justice are really wanting people listening to this to be praying. I don't say this just rhetorically or like, you know, Christian political correctness. I mean, literally, I want people praying for Riverview Christian Academy. We're litigating. We filed our lawsuit. Part of the case has been dismissed for now. The parents we're representing in a class action suit is still active and going. And then the state is countersued in Mount Chasta, uh, Superior Court. If they get their way, the school will be shut down at the end of the summer. Uh, so we, it's, the stakes are very high for, for a lot of kids. Um, and a lot of kids who've been blessed in the past are, we won't see that in the future. So I encourage people strongly to pray for this diligently for Riverview Christian Academy. It's up there near Reading. And also, uh, if they could go to our website to sign up to get, get our case updates on this and our other cases, I would greatly appreciate that. This is a, this is one of the most egregious things I've ever seen from any government action in my lifetime. And it's the state of California at the state level and it 's diabolical, and they have the entire state legal uh, the resources at their at their beckoning call on this litigation
1: counsellor do you get the sense that their hopes they meaning the state had hoped that this was kind of a rural section of California? Nobody's really paying any attention so they could carry through with this raid, get the schools shut down, create some degree of precedence that would then allow them to repeat these actions elsewhere. Was there any sense of that being part of the agenda here?
2: Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, they want to have this shut down. Um, we also know that they're looking at shutting down other Christian boarding schools as well, um, and that's all I can say on that. All and right,
1: so, so essentially we've got a line drawn in the sand here.
2: Right, and, and they, they want to shut them all down. If they're a Christian boarding school that teaches what the Bible teaches, has have the morals regarding sexual activities and promises, that kind of stuff, they want them shut down if they don't give in to, their, to that radical agenda that they're pushing. And it's, it's very concerning. And, and so many young boys and girls uh, who are there in those Christian boarding schools for a reason uh, who need that. Um, they're going to to be um, the, the real losers in this, and um, so we're going to back for the parents and he's Christian and his Christian boarding
1: school. Yeah, sadly the kids always end up becoming pawns and getting uh, caught in the middle. Counselor, we appreciate the time and the update. Please do keep us posted um, as this case continues to progress its way through the courts. Riverview Christian Academy in Northern California. There's Brad Dacus, constitutional lawyer, the founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute. More information on the web at PJI. All right, 516, let's get a look at traffic right now. An update from the KFAX Traffic Center.
0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: Tolerance. It's a term bantied about with great abandon these days, especially by those on the left, liberals who wish for freedom of expression and understanding for all peoples of all persuasions, hawking all agendas, eh, with the sole caveat that tolerance is tossed unceremoniously out the window when it comes to those deemed by the so-called tolerant left to be Intolerant, And by intolerant, they mean pretty much anyone who doesn't tout their party line or embrace their body politic. A new book out that gives us the inside story to this issue of an attempt by the liberal left to silence everyone else. The book is called The Silencing, How the Left is Killing Free Speech. Its author, well-known political pundit, news analyst, USA Today columnist, and Fox News contributor Kirsten Powers. Kirsten, let's talk a yeah. bit about this attack on free speech coming from kind of an unusual end of the political spectrum. I mean, aren't these the same people, the students of yesterday and the teachers of today that began the free speech movement on the Berkeley campus in the 1960s?
3: Yes, exactly. And I I call the people in the book the liberal left distinguish them from what I consider just the average Democrat or even your average principled liberal who still really holds firm to those ideas of tolerance and diversity and free speech that you were just referring to. Uh, And and that's what makes, I think, what they're doing that much more troubling is because on the one hand, they still claim to value these things while at the same time they are using all sorts of different tactics to silence the debates, to say certain things, you know, certain debates are over, that we aren't allowed to talk about certain things anymore. And if you do talk about them, you will be labeled with some toxic moniker that's you know, going to make you radioactive, basically, to the rest of society.
1: And and how do they live with themselves in the sense? And, and, And you've had a chance to deal with both ends of the political spectrum, both as a reporter and news analyst. There's this sense, I think, that some of them are out there promoting the same kind of stereotypes that they themselves purport to hate. Right. Well, I think
3: that, uh, that they are able to do it because they really do believe that what they're doing is a righteous act. They, they believe that they have the capital T truth, that they know what is right, and that there really is nothing to debate. And so that they don't they, they don't feel that there is a need to, for example, treat somebody who opposes same-sex marriage as anything other than a homophobe or a bigot and and so you know even though i i do support same sex marriage i i recognize that there are people who don't that are people of goodwill and that you know and that the best way to engage people is to um persuasion uh you know rather than coercion rather than trying to silence them and the liberal left doesn't see it that way they really do believe that the righteous act is to just really sort of isolate that person from society by saying no you know, you're, you're a homophobe, and uh, you know, we don't we don't even need to talk to
1: you about it. Yeah, the irony is, if they believe so strongly in their position, you would think that the notion of civility and honesty and public discourse in the end would allow the, the quote-unquote truth to win out, but yet they don't apparently see it that way, and I have to wonder if there's almost a sense of, of compartmentalizing going on here. You, you resided inside of the Clinton administration as a Clinton appointee from 92 to 98. From that kind of uh, viewpoint, from the kind the inside looking out, is there a lot of compartmentalization that goes on?
3: I don't, I, I don't think that they really feel a need to compartmentalize because, like I said, they really do believe that they believe so strongly in what they're doing that they they feel like that they're on the right so called right side of history or the you know the right side of the issue and and so that they you know there's, there's an example this just happened last month of a uh, uh, Christina Hoff summer who's She's an AEI scholar and she came, she went to Georgetown and Overland University in the same month to speak on what she calls equity feminism. It's her version of feminism, which is different from liberal feminism. And, you know, she was treated almost like a terrorist coming to campus. It was, you know, know, she had to have security and they had people there holding signs that they're trigger warnings. So they were being triggered, you know, that this is going to cause them some sort of emotional Distress and danger, and there were signs for a safe room where you could go and and be safe while she's, you know, on campus talking to the campus Republicans about her her vision of feminism and just treating treating differing ideas as actually dangerous. You know that that's I think that that is what is. It takes it away from just your basic intolerance of uh, I can't hear this. That it's actually posing a danger, and need and, and they try to get the speeches canceled. And if they can't get the speeches canceled, then they try. To, they're very disruptive, um, or they try to delegitimize the speaker by making them seem like they're saying these horrific things when all they're doing is expressing a different
1: opinion. And the irony is that seems to be kind of out of the arsenal of, uh, of tools that they utilize seems to be some of the more popular approaches, stigmatization, uh, delegitimizing, as you're saying, sometimes even going as far as, as dehumanizing. Uh, many of your colleagues, some of which um, as, as commentators that appear on other networks, I won't mention MSNBC, uh, make much game of this sport of dehumanizing those that have differing opinions.
3: Yeah, I mean, dehumanizing is a tactic you see in particular towards uh, conservative women or uh, non-white conservatives. So it's basically trying to turn them into, you know, non non meanings. You don't even need to take them seriously. And with, with conservative women, they will do it through, you know, she's not really a woman. They don't speak for women. The only women who speak for women are pro-choice Democrats, um, that they are, you know, bush in a skirt – Uh, They're sort of these female impersonators, these are some of the the words that have been used to describe uh, conservative women, or they objectify them, which is another form of dehumanization, which actually, what is so noxious about this is that it's feminists who have came up with this theory that objectifying women is dehumanizing and it's actually very effective. It's a very effective way to, to make people not take a woman seriously. So if you focus obsessively on her body or her looks or what she's wearing, as they did with, for example, Sarah Palin, and turn her into a sex object, then voters start to you know, not see this person any longer as even a potentially serious person. They just see them as a sex object. And so these are the kind of tactics that they use, even though they say – they stand
1: for women. But what I don't understand is, and maybe you can shed some light on this, why do mainstream liberals give give sort of a get out of jail free card to some of these commentators and, and so called news reporters who who use this kind of language, for example, you mentioned about uh, references to people like um, either Sarah Palin or uh, Michelle Bachman as as bimbos. I think at one time didn 't Ed Schultz even use that yeah. demeaning term uh, directed toward you and 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 when it 's done. The liberal left seems to look the other way, but can you imagine anyone on Fox News making a reference to, say, Hillary Clinton as the um, Democrat candidate bimbo yes. and getting away with it?
3: No, of course not. I mean, there's a double standard, and uh, it's some they have started to be shamed by it, and so they have some groups have started to recognize that they have to condemn uh, condemn this when it's happening to conservative women. Now they always kind of do it in this grudging way you know like oh yeah i guess we have to you know we have to stand up for this but you know they're not but but for a long time they didn't and a lot of them were participants in it that's the thing that a lot of the people who were making the misogynist attacks against sarah palin were self-described feminists so you know it's and so it's it's sometimes it's them and then other times it's sitting by you know while keith olbermann while he was you know, sitting atop his perch at MSNBC is doing it, whether it's Chris Matthews that is doing it, uh, they, you know, they just sit there and they, they don't, they, they just either ignore it or they, um, you know, maybe will find something to complain about now and then, but it doesn't cause the full-scale hysteria that you see, like what you saw, what happened when, when Rush Limbaugh had, you know, had uh, called Sandra Fluck, you know, a slut, which he, He apologized, well actually I don't know if he apologized, but he was treated as if he had to, uh, you know, lose his show over that, right? You know, and this is one incident versus continuous incidents of liberal men that are completely ignored.
1: What's ironic about this is just how insidious and widespread all this is. As you delineate inside the pages of the silencing, we, we, we find this approach to um, again just the 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 closing down of civil dialogue, the stigmatization, dehumanization of the opposition, so to speak, that occurs not only on college campuses, as we referred to a moment ago. It's taking place uh, certainly within uh, politics, within the the. the Democrat Party, we see it taking place in in the news arena. It's almost as if there's there's no free um, antagonizing zone where actual discourse and exchange of, of ideas can take place anymore, without fearful of, of suddenly coming under attack or having even your very legitimacy being questioned.
3: Right. I think mean, that's exactly right. Um, yeah, and I just did want to clarify that. Russ, I just checked that Rush Limbaugh did apologize to her, which is like one extra step that we don't often see. By the the men, uh, you know, on the left who just are doing this with in, impunity and are never are never criticized. So, you know, I do think that um, the delegitimizing that's going on, which I get into in the in the book so much, is just is such an effective tactic to uh, to avoid debate, uh, to, to to not have to, you know, somebody says something and you don't have to engage them on what they actually said. Uh, instead, you can just pick out. Something about them that other people are not going to like. Other people do not want to listen to somebody who who they've been convinced is a racist. They do not want to listen to somebody who they've convinced have been convinced of is, is an Islamophobe or you know or a rape denier, as they call the people who question the campus rape statistics. And it's just kind of, they're neither conversation enders, not conversation starters. It's not encouraging robust debate uh and, and which is really how we get knowledge in society. Uh instead it's encouraging really us just accepting what a certain group of people have decided is the truth and we're not supposed to question it.
1: Kirsten Powers, our guest today on this edition of Lifeline, we're talking about her new book called The Silencing, How the Left is Killing Free Speech. The new book, by the way, just released by Regnery Press, available at Bay Area bookstores as well as through Amazon.com. We'll take a brief time out, come back to more of our conversation with Kirsten Powers as this edition of Lifeline continues. Welcome back to Lifeline. Our special guest today, well, you certainly know her as a political pundit, news analyst, USA Today columnist, and Fox News contributor, and now a new book called The Silencing. We're visiting today with Kirsten Powers. Kirsten, you relay an example of how insidious all of this is taking place on college campuses in terms of almost uh, sort of grooming students into this sense of, um, of intolerance uh, by talking about um, Lafayette College and, and their so called bias response team. Uh, share this example with listeners from the book, if you would, and then give us a sense of just how widespread is this mentality across campuses in America today.
3: Well, th- these kinds of things are starting to crop up, and I expect them to probably spread, which is the idea that, you know, if you something on campus happens that you feel was somehow offensive, you know, some sort of bias, whether it's a racial bias or, you know, gender bias or something, that you can report people for it, uh, and that it's treated as if it's uh, almost like a bodily harm that has occurred to you. And this is something that comes up throughout the, the book in, in in various stories, which was particularly alarming to me, which was that you know taking offense or even just disagreement or having to see something or hear something that you don't like is really just often described as a violent event. That's the language that's used. I talk about the professor at the University of California at Santa Barbara who physically attacked a pro-life student who was part of a peaceful demonstration and told the police officer when she was arrested that she was quote-unquote triggered, which is a word that comes up throughout the book, uh, that, that she was triggered by having to encounter this peaceful demonstration. That She shouldn't have to see something like this, that it's you know, this is supposed to be her safe space. This is a professor, um, you know, who doesn't want to have to encounter a view that she doesn't like, and that and treats it just the expression of the view as an attack. And so, this is the mentality that we have that is spreading, which is which is that, you know, in that case, that's an outlier. Usually, it doesn't involve somebody physically attacking somebody. The response, but there there are other ways that the person is then silenced because, you know, they say, well, I just like I can't, you know, I just. It, it was, I can't. I can't see that. I can't hear that. I can't. It's, it's, you know, the irony mean, is that you, when you breakdown.
1: when you put this in context for those of us that are old enough to remember, a, a lot of the new liberalism today, whether it be on college campuses or in the mainstream media, sounds like a lot of the old McCarthyism of the 1950s.
3: Yes. Yeah. Very similar. And it's there's yeah there's this aspect of who you talk to also uh, is is indicative of. Of who you are versus what you say or what you think, and I experienced this actually when my book came out. When uh, I gave excerpts of the book to various publications, including the Daily Beast, which I write for and is considered you know left of center, but also to a publication at the Heritage Foundation, which is conservative. And because of that, I had all these, liberal lefties coming after me, saying that I you know because I had allowed the Heritage Foundation to run an excerpt that I, you know, that, that just proved that I was a right-wing hack and my book was somehow backed by the Heritage Foundation. Some, you suddenly I mean? you're a
1: shill, shill for the left, or for the right, right rather.
3: <laughs> yeah, I mean, but, but never mind that, like, I ran excerpts in the Daily Beast. You know what I mean? It doesn't it's just, they, they just look for some kind of relationship that they can use to prove that you're a secret you're a closet conservative. I have a bunch of examples in the book of how they really use this against journalists. To scare journalists to, into uh, not pursuing stories because they will be accused of being closet conservatives because they are investigating the Obama administration or they're investigating Republicans. But if they investigate, uh, you know, the, the right the the right people, then uh, then they're gonna if they, if they investigate Republicans, they're gonna be fine. But if they investigate Democrats, they're not. So you'll have people like Cheryl Atkinson who award-winning investigations of both parties but all you'll hear about from the liberal left is how she investigated the Obama administration and therefore she's this she's literally this partisan uh you know conservative hack
1: you know, the irony is this agenda, though, just bubbles so, 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 uh, close to the surface. It's, it's unbelievable. I mean, for example, uh, Chris Hayes recently did what he called a Hillary Clinton study guide for millennials, where he touted all the wonderful things that she had apparently had done before most of them, quite frankly, had ever even been born. And yet, can you imagine if, say, Fox News attempted to do a, a new millennials guide to Ben Carson? What, what, what kind of response you would see from the left?
3: Right. Well, that's totally standard. I mean, you can't. there you know, there's this idea that uh, you know they spent all this time. I have a whole chapter on it trying to be Fox News, uh, the White House did, saying you know they're not a real news organization and uh, and and telling other news organizations that they shouldn't treat them as real news organizations. And meanwhile, MSNBC is doing. This times a million, you know, and and I'm not. I actually, I think MSNBC is free to do that. I don't. And if and if, the, and if George Bush had ever come out and said they weren't legitimate, I would have been the first person to defend them. You know, I don't. I think that they they're they're, they're free to you know have, have whatever kind of program they want to have, and uh and I and I don't think that that means that you know if Chris Hayes does something on one show that. Uh, you know, a reporter or a host from another show is somehow held accountable for that, right? I mean, like, the same way, like, they try to merge everything at Fox together. It's like, well, because there's Sean Hannity, then that means that Brett Baer can't be trusted. Well, those two things have nothing to do with each other. You know, they're completely different shows. And, um, and one is an expressly an opinion show. And so, yeah, there's an an absolute double standard where you had Obama administration officials leaving and going to work for MSNBC after the same people who said that Fox was not a legitimate news organization.
1: Help us understand something here. Uh, how much of this, in your opinion, is is just based on that sense of unfamiliarity breeding contempt? In other words, that it's easy to either dislike or hate what you don't know or don't understand. So many people, particularly for the the, the political world inside the Beltway, don't have an opportunity to really get to know "quote unquote" the enemy or the other side. And so, as a result, because of that that sense of ignorance, we'll call it uh, that 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 they Sort of have this 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 deepening, abiding sense of acrimony shown toward those who don't share the same opinion.
3: Yeah, yeah, I think that there's I, I, there's definitely an element of that. It's very hard to sustain these the, the I, these ideas. For example, that every single person who opposes same-sex marriage is a homophobe. If you actually have friends or people that you're opposed to who have sincere religious beliefs that lead them to oppose same-sex marriage and and you can see you know that they they aren't homophobes i'm not saying that the person's never a homophobe but i'm just saying that that's you know that that at least in my experience the people that i know that that's not what's driving them what's driving them is a religious belief so i do think there's that um but i I don't the the problem with the liberal left is they really aren't interested in in knowing people who are different than them and they because they are so convinced that they are right, that they it just does not seem to have occurred to them that, uh, that they could be wrong. But, you know, I used to be pretty closed minded and I was definitely, you know, I'd worked in the Clinton administration, Democratic politics, very liberal family, and, uh, I had a lot of these, these ideas as well that I had it all figured out. And basically working at Fox News and, and then later in life, conversion to Christianity where I started. Being around, obviously, a lot of Christians and more conservatives, I, you know, did slowly break down my, my prejudices, frankly. I mean, they were prejudices, uh, where I could, you know, I didn't necessarily change my political views, but I was able to see, oh, you know, there is a debate to be had here. Uh, there are things to talk about, and, and these are legitimate views, they're just different than mine.
1: So at the end of the day, while it's it's often kind of surprising to see how closed-minded so many so-called open-minded liberals really are, there is hope. And, 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 and I think sometimes the opportunity to the degree to which it's possible – and I'm just thinking about people that are engaged in the day-to-day business of going about uh, their affairs – to engage with people in mm-hmm. a loving, f- legitimate, intellectual fashion – Concerning the issues of the day, not with heated exchange and raised voices, but just just an, an open-minded exchange of ideas, can sometimes eventually bring people around to another point of view.
3: I think so. Yeah, it's, it's often slow, so I think people get discouraged. Uh, you know, I think it's not it's not like you're going to meet somebody one time and that's going to happen. But I do think over time, and I've had a lot of friends tell me that it's you know, knowing me also has changed their views on some things, or even you know, they had their their ideas about what a liberal is like or what a liberal thinks. And, and, you know, so I think, you know, it's been beneficial in both directions.
1: Well, the book certainly is very engaging in helping us to not only better understand what's taking place here, the dynamic between the two sides, so to speak, but also, I think, uh, uh, gives us a sense of hope that we can engage in some dialogue and eventually see some change. Kristen Powers, the book is called The Silencing, How the Left is Killing Free Speech. The book published by Regnery Press, available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, as well as through Amazon.com. And, of course, Regnery Press, a part of the company that owns this fine radio station.
0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: Any cursory view of the evening news or look at what's trending on Twitter or, for that matter, uh, gaining likes on Facebook. Tells you a lot about what's going on in our culture today, and and so too I think can the crime rate, divorce, marriage statistics, even church attendance for that matter. It all points to a core shift in our society, its values, and as a result where we stand as individuals as much as a nation on many of today's so-called hot-button issues. You know the issues, abortion, gay marriage, the environment, politics in the church, on and on the list goes. Perhaps today, unlike never before. One thing we can agree on, and that is there's very little agreement on many of these issues, either inside or, for that matter, outside of the church. Well, what kind of a position should we stand? How should the church articulate where we stand? And sadly, today, oftentimes, the debate is not how to articulate where we stand, but whether or not we need to take a stand at all. Joining me, a man that needs no real introduction. He's pastored a church or two, written a book or two, even been on the radio once or twice. He's Chip Ingram, senior pastor of Venture Christian Church and uh, speaker on Living on the Edge, the new book, Culture Shock, a biblical response to today's most divisive issues. And Chip, always great to have you on the show.
0: Craig, good to uh, talk to you personally and and great to be uh, on KFAX.
1: Boy, isn't it scary what we see going on today? And and, you know, that that old song, uh, anything goes, uh, you know, what's uh, black today is white today, what's good today is bad today day and uh, anything goes. And that certainly seems to be the trend. Sadly, though, that mentality has has crept from the impact of the culture into impacting the church. And now, as I say, we, we don't debate how we should go about articulating the stand that we have on certain key issues, but rather we fight each other as to whether or not we even need to take a stand.
0: Yeah, that's the thesis of this book. This book isn't about culture wars. It's not about blaming you know Hollywood or the educational system or the government. And this book is really addressed to us inside the church who say we love Christ. We unashamedly believe the Bible's God's word. That you know we believe that uh, the second person of the Godhead uh, left heaven, was born of a virgin, uh, lived a perfect life, paid for our sins on the cross, died, rose again the third day, ascended to the right hand of the Father and gave us this amazing mission to declare to all the world that our sins have been forgiven by what he did at the cross, and it's the gospel, it's the good news, and that inside of that, then, a new life always begets a, uh, a new life change. And so, you know, that's my concern, is that Christians don't live like Christians, and part of it is ignorance, and part of it is, you know, as I talk about in the book, uh, so much of those hot topics are really symptoms and underneath, whether it's abortion or human sexuality or cohabitation, adultery, fornication, sexual morality uh, was rampant in the first century. And it was a strong challenge as believers came out of that lifestyle. And the same uh, with regard to their, their challenges politically. I mean, Rome was the power. Caesar wasn't just the emperor. He was God. And to not worship him was to be an atheist. And, and so, you know, I think we're just returning to a day where... Uh, Christianity is going to be a lot more like the first century, so how do we winsomely, lovingly uh, declare the truth by what we say and by what we do? And I think we need to bring a lot more light than heat, and this talks about how do we do that inside the church first before we export
1: it. And, of course, one of the big challenges here, Chip, is the fact that at the core is oftentimes not just a matter of how do we go about declaring the truth, But how do we go about arriving at what the truth is? Now, certainly from a, um, I'll I'll say, a conservative um, um, viewpoint, from a Christian conservative viewpoint, we understand that that God's Word is the ultimate and final arbiter of truth. But it's sad today because, you know, when when I grew up uh, 150 years ago, uh, we knew that truth Existed. We knew that there was an absolute truth, absolutely. And today we've gotten into this paradigm shift where now the debate is not what truth is, but that there is not just the truth, but a truth. There's your truth and my truth, and it's, it's all wrapped up in this so called uh, moral relativism, is of today.
0: Well, one of the things I do in the book, I had uh, the privilege in my journey of. Um I draw a little picture. I just came back from a book tour I did about. I literally got to take the pulse of evangelical Christianity from the north, Michigan, to as far south as Fort Lauderdale, the middle, Dallas, Fort Worth, Atlanta, and West Coast. And, um, you know, I wanted to get everything down to one picture. So I had this slide made of an iceberg, if people can imagine an iceberg, and above it the iceberg of the symptoms. And the big symptom is sexual immorality, whether that's abortion or cohabitation or Uh, homosexuality and then politics is uh, certainly a live issue and and then the the whole environmental issues and what I did is that's above, that's 10% and those are the symptoms and right underneath that, under the waterline, it really, what you talked about the real issue is is what's true and is it relative or is it absolute and uh, you know, I wrote my thesis at West Virginia University on the philosophical basis of teaching ethics. In other words, is there a right, is there a wrong? And uh, I do a little work there to help people see that in the last 50 years, plus or minus, think of this, in the last 50 years, the amazing rapid change in our culture, uh, we have literally turned upside down, I'm talking about inside the church, 4,000 years of biblical morality. So, I mean, in, in the in the decade of the 50s, uh, sexual immorality, even in the culture, was about uh, two to four percent girls and boys by their senior year of high school. It's eighty and ninety percent today. Thirty percent of evangelical teens believe same-sex relationships are okay. These are in Bible-teaching churches, like like where I'm at. And about thirty-four or thirty-five percent of uh, eighteen to twenty-nine-year-olds in our churches. I'm not talking about you know out there. Um, Are either cohabitating or having casual sex and basically it's you know I don't feel like that command about sexual purity really applies to me so the issue is really those are the symptoms it's what's true and that whole journey of existentialism that brought us to our current sort of pluralism underneath that at the bottom of the iceberg is exactly what you hit on it's scripture Is it the final authority, or is it just culturally interpreted?
1: I have to wonder, you know, some would would then ponder, well, what's transpired here that down through the years, and particularly in this sort of fast track over the last um, couple of generations, what's happened to change our thinking? then, of course, maybe the bigger, broader argument is, have we simply changed our thinking or ceased to think entirely?
0: Well, I think what happens is our youth and, um, you know, remember... Remember when existentialism in the 60s, a lot of people listening were going, oh, yeah, if it feels good, do it. Remember that? Oh, yeah. Uh, I have my truth, you have yours. I'm okay, you're okay. Well, well when that began to, you know, that, that turned into the sexual revolution of the 70s, the greed generation of the 80s, the me generation of the 90s, and then it got full-blown where after 30 to 40 years in academia, it went full-blown to where pluralism has gone from every opinion is okay to anyone who dares say... This is right and this is wrong. It's intolerant. And I think we need to understand that um, pounding the table with people who understand and look at truth completely differently is a, is a no-win proposition. We're going to have to demonstrate the gospel in fresh ways. We're going to have to love people. One of the big movements in the Bay right now that I'm really excited about is churches coming together in radical ways. Like in, in my kind of 20-plus years of being around here, I've never seen the business community churches all come together around serving, caring, loving. And I I think that sort of builds the platform. And then we have to declare the truth and and realize it's probably going to be unpopular.
1: And we do have to do some um, platform rebuilding, don't we? Because as you point out in the book, and I quote you here, sexual immorality has become so acceptable even in the church that we've lost our moral distinctive and as a result, our platform to share the good news.
0: Well, I mean, it's just, it's the reality of, you don't live any differently than me, and, and maybe why God put this so deep in my heart was, that's why I rejected Christianity. You know, I mm. grew up in the Church, I, I watched people live just absolutely uh, lives of duplicity, and it was, forget it, I don't believe any of it. But what I, what, what gives me hope is, I met, uh, you know, my heart was very, you know, into sports, and, you know, I went to school on a basketball scholarship, I got around some athletes who didn't push me, they lived the life, they gave me a New Testament, and they said, read this, ask God if he's really real, read it with an open mind. And they, their lives were the kind that I thought, hey, I, I want to be like them, I want to have relationships like them. They were authentic, they were transparent. When they blew it, they owned it. And they were good. I mean, they were the kind of people that they had excellence. And I think that's the kind of platform the early church had. I think that any time you see God moving, that's the kind of platform in business and sports and education. I think that's what has to happen, Christians living like Christians in the church. And so this book, what I I realize is most people, when these topics come up, are either silent, they don't say anything, either because they don't know what to say, or they realize they're going to be criticized, or they come out so strong and so angry that you know, we shake our head and we realize, you know, we might agree with some of the content, but the way they're saying it, again, just um, removes any platform and basis because it's so unloving.
1: Well, and, and when you take the charity out of this, then all of a sudden you you, you, you set up a combative situation Well, certainly people are immediately going to be not just on the defensive, they'll in fact move into an offensive position. And now you find yourself sort of uh, shrinking back and saying, well, okay, don't want to dare go there because I know what's going to happen. And and therein lies then the loss that we lose of not just the platform, but the influence that we as the church should have. Uh, Not just to say, let's see what we can do to sprinkle some truth into culture, but in fact to lead the culture. It is the topic of a new book called Culture Shock, a biblical response to today's most divisive issues. We're going to take a brief time out, come back to more of our conversation with Pastor Chip Ingram as this edition of Lifeline continues.